Amen. How are we doing, church? Doing all right? Hope you are. Grab your Bibles if you brought them. If not, there's one in the seat back in front of you. This is an all-skater. Everybody needs to play along. Go to Colossians chapter 2. We find ourselves uh, about halfway through this two-year discipleship journey where we as a church, a whole bunch of individuals ask, what does it look like to put Jesus before all things? And so in order for us to do that, we're studying the book of Colossians. And, and the first section kind of starts out to say, what does it look like for him to be before all things in his church? And now we're talking about what does it look like for Jesus to be before all things in our hearts. Next, we'll talk about what does it look like for Jesus to be before all things in your day-to-day life, at home, uh, in your marriage, as a parent, and at work. And then we'll wrap the whole book of Colossians up with before all things in my ministry and mission. And so... Uh, the first section of this was before all things in this church, and you'll remember that we rolled out our vision for 2017, and a part of what God is calling us to do as a church and declaring that he is before all things is what Jesus commanded. He said, the greatest commandment is this. The first commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And a part of the way that we loved our neighbors started this weekend, and on Friday night, uh, we co-hosted with the Tim Tebow Foundation and about eight other churches. We co-hosted Night to Shine, which was a prom for people with special needs. And I just want to say thank you to the over 1,000 volunteers from 1122 that we had. And so, and the hundreds of people, 1122ers, that I met there. It really was. All I know how to say is that, is that whole thing just smelled a whole lot like Jesus. It was really, really, really amazing. And then you'll remember when we were wrapping up the first section of this, we wanted people to have the opportunity to jump on board with this whole Before All Things Generosity Initiative. And so all of us sort of fell into one of three categories, and a whole bunch of you, really hundreds and hundreds of families, hopped on board with the Before All Things Generosity Initiative and said, hey, we're new to the church, or either, you know, we weren't able to commit last year, but this year we want to commit uh, for the next 12 months. There was a bunch of us that committed to finish strong with the commitment we made last year, and then there's a, a whole, hundreds of us that said, you know what, we think God is call, calling us to take deeper steps of generosity. And just as a reminder, about a year ago, we believed that God was, was leading our church to do four big things. One was just to continue to be a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. The second thing, we felt like God was calling us to put down some roots right here at our San Pablo campus, that we were going to buy the entire Walmart with Hobby Lobby as our tenant, and then eventually, when needed, we would, we would move into that space. We also believed God was calling us to plant the gospel in new communities. That started with Bay Meadows, that, uh, then it went to Mandarin, and then there's an and beyond, that, that wherever God calls us to put an 1122 campus, we're going to kind of chase you around to your neighborhoods and put a church in your neighborhood. That's what God's calling us to do. And then lastly, to sow gospel seeds here in town with the Jobs Initiative and then all over the world. And so to this point, we've planted 64 churches around the world, and we're, we're going to plant over 100, okay? That's what God has called us to do. And in order to accomplish all of that, then it would take about $24 million. And a year ago, when I said that number to people, you know, we were all like, oh my goodness, it's a $6 million annual budget. We're a 40-year-old church. How in the world are we going to do this? And we say that if our prayers are not intimidating to us, they're probably insulting to God. And so this was not our idea. This is what we believe God is calling us to. And I just want to celebrate the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, how he's moving in our church's life to declare that he is before all things um, because it looks like at the end of the two-year initiative with the commitments and the anticipated giving that the actual number is going to be, ready, 
about $35 million. Amen? Amen. You should clap a lot. Now, yeah, man, it'll blow your hair back. All right, just look. So uh, is $35 million a lot to a redneck from South Carolina? Yeah. You can buy a lot of beanie weenies for $35 million. And so to the almighty God that owns everything, I don't know, not that much. But here's why that number matters, okay? It's not about that number. It's not about 1122 getting bigger. Here's what it's about. It's about that one more person coming to know Jesus. It's about another church plant in Brazil or in East Africa. It's about another campus that's at your section of town that you tell me, you know where we should put an 1122 and fill in the blank, that those kind of things are made available. And what, what it's most, what's most important about it to me is this, if, if what Jesus said is true, and I'm banking my whole life on that, that's a fact, okay? And he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a whole bunch of 22ers that put a whole bunch of heart towards Jesus, declaring that he is before all things. And so, church of 1122, at every location, way to go, amen and amen. Now, that's not all God is doing. God is, this is an exciting time to be a part of his movement that is 1122. Last week, last week, um, we, we gave a, a gospel invitation. We asked people to consider surrendering their life to the Lordship of Christ. And in just that weekend, between our, from Thursday night to Sunday evening in all of our services and all of our locations, I just want you to hear this. There were 84 people last weekend that surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's amazing. It, 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 it's the craziest thing you've ever heard of in your life. And just as crazy, at the last service that we just had, this is, this is just as important. There was one person that surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This surfer girl that drives up from New Smyrna Beach, and her hair was still wet. I think she surfed this morning, okay? And, and, and the reason that's important is because... Because the Bible says that heaven celebrates or rejoices over that one more person that comes to Christ. That that's even more important than a hundred people that just, a hundred church people that show up to church again. And so that's what this is all about. Our church is all about declaring that Jesus is before all things. And so now we want to dig in on the second week of what it looks like for Jesus to be before all things in your heart. So go to Colossians chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 16. Paul says this. Paul wrote it to the church in Colossians. He says this. <clears throat> he says, therefore, and anytime the word therefore is in the Bible, you've got to see what it's there for. So what he's saying is, um, because of last week's message, remember last week's message is, um, because Jesus took your record of debt and my record of debt, and he canceled it by nailing it to the cross, and at the cross, he disarmed the enemy. Because of that. Remember my big Flavor Flav condemned necklace that I wore last week? If you weren't here, you really got to check it out. All right, it was special. You remember that? Because therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of the gospel. Therefore, because of that, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And if you're like, I don't know, what is he talking about here? New moon. I know blue moon. I don't know new moon. What is he talking about? Well, he's kind of talking about that sort of stuff. <clears throat> Basically, these things in, in this time period about food, drink, festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths, these were just marks of man-made religion. And what he's saying is this. Remember, the, the Colossians, the reason Paul writes this letter to the church in 
in Colossae is because there were some people that thought like the gospel was just a doorway that you walked through. But once you walked through the gospel, then you moved on to other things to really prove your Christianity, to prove that you were a follower of Jesus. And what Paul is saying is watch out for legalism. Watch out for judging people based on their religious activity instead of knowing people based on their identity in Christ. That this is fundamentally, the overall issue is legalism. And legalism is measuring your own or someone else's spirituality by their ability to keep man-made rules. And if you do this, it is rigid, confining, and a lifeless way to live. And so he says, don't let anybody judge you based on your religious activity. Verse 17, he says, these things, these, these religious activities, they are a shadow of things to come. And the substance belongs to Christ. So <clears throat> in regards to religious activity, I mean, in any Christian tradition, what he's saying is, listen, in and of itself, when it first started, it was probably a good thing. But that, that religious tradition, that activity, it's just a shadow. It's not the actual thing. And so here's the thing about religious traditions. They're great if you grew up in that tradition. But if that is not your tradition, it can be very, very foreign to you. And watch out lest you begin to judge people not based on their relationship with Jesus, but on whether or not they obey your religious traditions. I'll give you many examples, okay? <clears throat> kind of the... I, I'm going to try to offend everybody, so just get ready. If I don't get your group, just come to me at the end, and I'll just make fun of you, okay? So, <clears throat> for example, okay, uh, on the day we opened this church back in uh, September of 2012, my grandmother came, all right? My grandma is, is tried and true, you know, blue blood Southern Baptist, all right? And uh, she believes that she's Southern Baptist because John was a Baptist and why not be like him, all right? And that's not what that means, but that's what she did. And, and when I asked her, how'd you like it? She, she was not even convinced that, like, this was a real church. She loved the cross out front. She loved the cross up here. She does not like it that I will not tuck in my shirt. She just cannot get over that, all right? She doesn't like that at all. We did not sing a hymn. In fact, on that day, on the very first day, we sang a song, and in the lyrics, it includes the words, and heaven meets earth like a sloppy, wet kiss. She didn't know what to do with that. I'm sure she had at least a couple of those because, you know, I have a dad and an aunt, but I, she didn't want to talk about it in church. That's not in the hymnal. And the thing that she could not get over, all right, um, the dress code bothers her a little bit. And ladies, those of you that do not wear dresses to church, that bothered her a lot, a lot, a lot, as much as my untucked shirt, okay? So we're all in the same camp. And then also, she couldn't get over that we don't have Sunday school. She just says to me, how can you be a church without Sunday school? I'm like, Mert, and we call her Mert. <laughs> I said, Mert, you know Jesus didn't go to Sunday school? She's like, shut your mouth, all right? So... <laughs> So Sunday school is a shadow, but it's not the thing. Sunday school was legit hundreds of years ago when they first invented the idea of Sunday school. You know why Sunday school started? Sunday school started in the South um, because a bunch of little, little boys and girls, sons and daughters, lived on farms and they dropped out of school because they had to work on the farm and they didn't know how to read. And so the church said, tell you what, when your kids get done with the chores before our worship gathering starts, show up about an hour early, and we will teach them to read. And the textbook that we'll use will be the Bible, and we will call it Sunday School. And it was brilliant evangelistic move of the church primarily in the South to teach the kids to read and understand the gospel. But guess what? Now most of our kids are in school. 
And if we tried to do Sunday school, we'd have to, you know how many buildings we'd have to build to fit all you people in Sunday school? So what we do is we just do disciple group in home. So what I'm saying here is that you can't judge your own tradition and hold everybody else to that religious tradition. Have you ever been in a different tradition? I mean, a Christian tradition, people that love Jesus, they just grew up different than you. The way they do church is different. I, I was co-officiating a Lutheran wedding for a buddy of mine one time with his grandfather. So his grandfather was like hardcore Lutheran. I don't even know if I've been to a Lutheran church except the one we bought and put Mandarin in. I think that's the only one I ever went to. <clears throat> and so I didn't study well. I didn't, I had to wear a robe and you know, I always feel like Harry Potter when I do that. So I don't love that, you know, I'm like, eh, cast spells, but that's all right. If you're into robes, awesome. All right. And so we're doing communion in the, in the thing. And so I, I had a part to play and I didn't know it. They all just stand up before a communion, and the, main, the Lutheran guy, he, he sings this song, oh, hey, oh, and then takes a sip of the cup, and I can see like a slobber bridge all the way to it, and I'm like, you are kidding me. <laughs> then he hands it to me, and I'm supposed to sing something, and you know, I, what am I going to do? I hear the train coming. I don't know the words. <laughs> so I just said, I don't know the second verse, and handed it back to him, because I didn't know. So the thing is, if, you begin, if all the Lutherans judge my relationship with Jesus based on if I know how to do communion right, that's the legalism that Paul is warning about. <clears throat> so um, I grew up in and around Southern Baptist world, so that made sense to me. It's just what I was used to. And then I remember the first time I went to a Catholic church. Listen, man, if, if you're Baptist, you go to a Catholic church, you're like, what is this? That's not even English. What are we doing? And then stand up, sit down, and you know, and you don't know. Nobody tells you. They need like a third base coach. Like, when I do this, you kneel. Like, this, you stand. Because I didn't know. Everybody just all of a sudden, they kneel, and I'm just sitting there. Like, I thought that was just a footrest. That's a great idea. So then, so then the next time, they start moving, and I kneel, and they all stood up. I'm like, ah. Oh. Sure enough, next time, they kneel, I stand up. I'm the only one. I'm like, and then, and then they're like, you know, now we're going to pass the peace. We never passed the peace. When we passed the peace, that meant something totally different than what they were doing. I didn't know what the guy was saying. I was, he was weird. I was trying to talk to the people I knew. And he says to me, peace be with you. I didn't know what he said. So I said, pretty good. How about you? He was like, oh, my non-cat. You're going to hell. You are going to hell. Then they line us up to do communion. So I'm in line, and I'm like, I don't want to embarrass myself anymore. And I'm trying to, like, peek around, like, how did they do this? Because, you know, communion, man, it can go a bunch of different ways, right? You can go rip and dip. You can go, uh, you can do, like, the Jesus it and the shot glass, you know. You can do that. Like, there's a lot of different ways. That's what we grew up on. And this was like, they're all drinking out of the same cup. And I'm like, this is flu season, okay? What are they, what are they doing? So then I get to the front. And if you're Catholic, you know what you're thinking? Yeah, that's church. You don't even think this is church. You feel like you're at the state fair with the lights and the whole deal, you know? And so I get to the front, and they ask me, like, the code. There's, like, the Catholic code. They ask you the question. And I didn't know. I didn't know. Nobody told me, so I just went, what's up? <laughs> the guy looks at me. The priest looks at me and goes, here's what he said. You should not have come. I'm like, bro, Jesus died on the cross for me. I don't know about you. I'm going to heaven, all right? So no, what nobody told me is nobody told me you could tap out. You could just do this tap out move and then they sing a song that sounds like the Lutheran wedding song. Oh, yeah, oh. And then you don't have to drink out of the flu cup. I was like, why didn't you tell me? And so I left that thing going, How, what was that? You see? And then, and then the way I grew up, I got saved at a 
fundamentalist Baptist camp, and they knew how to take the fun out of fundamentalism, if you know what I mean. And it was just rules and regulations about what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. So I get saved at this Baptist camp, and then I go find a Baptist church to get involved in. And the first night, I show up to youth group, because that's what you're supposed to do. The point of youth group that night was this. It was about the dangers of secular music in the minds of youth. I didn't know what secular meant. They showed us this movie called Hell's Bells. And it was about the date. By the way, at our 9 o'clock service, the producer of Hell's Bells was here. That's true. After I ripped it for like 20 minutes, okay? And so, <laughs> whatever. So, <clears throat> so they talk about the dangers of secular music. Guess what, the, guess what the premier band in the movie is? Journey. I was like, I thought they were Christian. You're probably not going to be into the Tupac and Dr. Dre I was listening to on the way here. So the next week, they told us to all bring our CDs and burn our CDs. And I am like, okay, so we're there. And people, and some kids were into it, man. They'd throw their ACDC down. They'd be like, you hear the demons leaving? I don't think that's a demon, Scooter. Uh, what else you got there? Guns and Roses? Here, let me throw that one away for you, all right? That's what, that's what I would do. <clears throat> Then I get to college, and I'm a member of, of a downtown First Baptist Church, okay? It was an incre- I mean, a great church if you were Baptist, like if you kind of knew when to do what. And then the problem is, um, I, I started this Bible study in my fraternity house, and all my fraternity brothers started getting saved. And I'm like, well, you got to go to church. But I would look at them and be like, well, you can't go like that, all right? They'll, they'll think you're like homeless. You can't go that way. You got to have a, I mean, if you're Baptist, you got to have pleated khakis and tuck in a shirt and maybe a tie. And so we would go, one of my buddies gets saved in our Bible study. He's like, all right, I'm in. And so we go and get him some decent clothes. And then we come to church all dressed up. And, and I didn't think a thing about it because I'd been there for a while. And the guy, the, the, the pastor is preaching on the 23rd Psalm. And he's teaching the Bible to a bunch of people that brought their Bibles. So they know what's going on. And my boy's asking where the Psalms are and that kind of stuff. <laughs> he's never been to church. He's never been to church. The closest thing that he'd ever come to church was when he'd go to class in college. It's the only time in his life he ever sat in rows and heard a person speak. So there was a confusing part to him as a new believer. So during the sermon in a downtown First Baptist, he raised his hand as if to ask a question. And I am like, you are going to get us tased, man. So I just, it's Pentecostal. It's not his fault. It's Pentecostal. So then I tried to figure out, all right, when my fraternity brothers get saved, i got to find a place to take them. So there was this college ministry that met on campus, like on Thursday nights. And so I thought, this will be good. And it was very college ministry, right? I mean, they love Jesus. And by the way, all these people I'm talking about love Jesus. They just all had their traditions. And so this college ministry, you know, there was like the long-haired guy, no shoes with the guitar down front singing the newest version of Kumbaya. And, and so normally it'd be okay. And sure enough, every time I would bring my friend or my fraternity brother, it would go to charismania. There was a bunch of people that grew up Assemblies of God. And if you grew up Assemblies of God, you're like, yeah, that's just normal. It's what we did. And there would be like the, the girl with the flowy dress. She would come out with like banners and a tambourine and running around in the spirit. And people would be like sizzling like bacon. And this lady behind me is talking, speaking in tongues. We didn't do that in the Baptist church. And I'm like, what is she saying? She needs to buy a Honda? She want to buy a Honda? What are you talking about? Buy a Honda. I don't know what you're asking. And then my friend is like, is this a cult? I'm like, I think it might be. I don't... I don't know. You see, I say all that to say that that all those things are a shadow of Jesus. So you don't get caught up in the the thing that's supposed to point to the thing. 
You don't get caught up in the activity, in the ritual, in their tradition, and miss the point of the whole of what it was about. And here's what I think. I think there's a lot of people, especially in the South, and you have rejected a thing that's not actually Christianity. What you have rejected are the traditions of a bunch of Christians. And those things are totally different, totally different. If you're gonna walk away from God, I would like for you to at least walk away from the actual invitation that Jesus gives. This is a part of what Paul's talking about. He's saying, be careful, watch out. So he goes on to say in verse 18, <clears throat> he's gonna talk about the particular uh, legalisms that they're facing. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Those are the two things. Going on in detail about visions puffed up with, without reason by his sensuous mind. Uh, asceticism was extreme self-denial. There was a group of what are called spoilers in the Colossian church, and they're saying, all right, if you want to be a real Christian, the gospel is like at the JV level, but if you want to be like a varsity like us, here's the food and drink that we don't touch and that we do not mess with at extreme discomfort to yourself. That's asceticism. And then they started worshiping like this personal experience that did not line up with the word of God. They would come with like a new divine revelation that was with, at odds with what the word of God said, things like worship of angels and those kinds of things. And Paul is saying, do not get caught up in that stuff. Verse 19, he says, so, so don't, don't let anybody disqualify you with their human traditions, verse 19, and not holding fast to the head from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now, when he says not holding fast to the head, the head, he means the head of the church who is Jesus. He's like, don't do anything that leads you away from Jesus. Don't do anything that points you away from Jesus. Beware of anything that, that focuses your attention on anything else than Jesus. That your growth in Christ, your walk with Jesus is all about Jesus. And so this happens in all kinds of churches and it could happen in ours. A couple of the big dangers, one would be disproportionalism that you take an aspect of what it means to follow Jesus and make it the litmus test by which we judge how everybody else walks with Jesus. And that could be a focus on prayer, a focus on doctrine, a focus on worship, a focus on anything at the expense of everything else and taking our eyes off of Jesus. The other thing that is, that is very scary is you can idolize the methods over the mission. You can idolize the message, the methods over the mission. Here's, I'll just be blunt. Don't fall in love with 1122 and miss Jesus. The point of 1122 is not 1122. The point of disciple groups is not at disciple groups. The point of our mission trips is not that you went on a mission trip. We're a movement for all people to discover and deepen. Here's the most important part of the whole thing. A relationship with Jesus. All of the, everything that we offer here. The reason we have programs and environments, etc., for adults, for children, for teenagers, all of that, the whole point is that you would hold fast to Jesus, that it would build your relationship with Jesus. I've had people apologize to me because they're, at a, they're, they're involved in a different Bible study, a non-1122 Bible study in the city. I'm like, listen, we don't have a no-complete clause on your discipleship journey. That is not the point. 
Um, you don't have to do our mission trips and all of that. The reason we provide you with all of that is because most of you don't have a clear path of a discipleship journey. So that's where we, the shepherds, come alongside to serve you and say, what, here's, here's some options. What do you think your next step in your walk with Jesus is? But whatever you do, don't get enamored with 1122 or me or some program. That's not the point. The point is holding fast to Jesus. <clears throat> Verse 20. So he says, if with Christ you died, in other words, if you were actually a Christian, if you have surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, if that would describe you, if, in, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? In other words, if you were saved by grace, then why are you legalistic and trying to earn your salvation by works, by trying to obey a bunch of man-made regulations instead of having a relationship with Jesus? Verse 21, it's, this is in quotes, do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to the human precepts and teachings. In other words, he's saying that, that your walk with Christ is not primarily about your activity. It's primarily about your identity in Christ, that you are hidden in Christ. Now, when he changes your heart, it changes everything about the way you live and not the other way around. You don't change the way you live so that you would be made acceptable before God, but it's the exact other way around. Because of Christ's activity, you're made acceptable before God, and that changes you in such a way that changes everything about you. And the problem with legalism is when we begin to judge other people based on what might even be good for us. I say it this way, what is smart for you in your relationship with Jesus isn't necessarily sin for somebody else in theirs. Let me give you some easy ones. Alcohol, alcohol, okay? Again, man, I grew up Southern Baptist. We were teetotalers. You weren't supposed to even, we wouldn't even um, eat at a restaurant that served alcohol because it might be a stumbling block for somebody else. Now, the, the problem is, um, and my grandma has always tried to convince me that Jesus changed water into Welch's, not wine, that it was different. It's not. It's just not. There's a lot of great verses about how wine is a blessing from God. Praise God, all right? But what is smart for you, some of you should never, ever drink, go close to it. You shouldn't go to a bar. You, never even, you should never smell it again because as you tried to consume alcohol, it consumed your whole life and the enemy puts his hooks in you. Flee, run away, stay away from that. But what is smart for you isn't necessarily sin for somebody else. Another one, it would be entertainment. The entertainment choices that I make for me and my family are not the standard by which you need to run your family. And so when we begin to judge other people based on smart decisions for your own walk, watch out because we're being legalistic. You want to see some people go crazy, just lose their mind? You talk to some good, convicted Christian parents about how we should educate our children. So listen, man, you can see a public school mom and a homeschool mom like kill each other over this one. And the reality is, is listen, if God has called you to homeschool your kids, praise God. That's the journey that you should walk. And me and my house, we're not going to homeschool our kids. Primarily it's because I don't want my wife to murder my children before they graduate high school. <laughs> and I would fund it. I mean, I, I, you know, 
So whether God calls you to put your kids in private school or private Christian school or public school, whatever, you should do what Jesus tells you to do and not try to tell somebody else to do what Jesus has told you to do. You see, we are called to be alive in Christ. But a lot of people think Christianity is primarily just sin management. It's just about activity. Like, I'm a good Christian, so here are the things I don't do. And if you spend the majority of your emotion and your attention and your energy on what you are not doing, then you will probably never have a great intimate walk with Jesus. This is what we're going to talk about all next week. Set your, things on, on, set your mind on things above. That, that being a Christian is about abiding with Christ. It's about being in a relationship with Jesus. And as we set our affections on him, as we put ourselves in the environments that stir our affections for him, then the things of this world do grow strangely dim. That he does change us from the inside out and not the outside in. You see, what scares me about a whole bunch of church people is that when you think about your walk with Jesus, you actually don't think about a relationship with Jesus. You just think about activities, things that you do and you don't do. You can't find that in the scriptures. You see, earlier, <clears throat> we sang that song. that said, I'll run and I won't quit. I want to chase after your heart like David did. David's a guy in the Old Testament, King David. <clears throat> he wrote most of the Psalms. And if you read the Psalms and take your Bible seriously, what you'll see here is this deep passion, this deep love relationship with the Almighty God. And quite honestly, it's all over the place when you, when you hear the way David describes it. I mean, he says things like, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, thirsts for you, yearns for you. And somehow as Christians, we take that verse and we put it on a sweatshirt with like a deer and antlers and a little brook as the deer. It's, no, that's not what that is. That's a, look, I've chased a lot of deer, a lot. And they were running from somebody that is trying to kill them. And they're, and they're worn out and they're scared and they're afraid and they're panting and they're just thinking, I'm exhausted and I just need a cold drink of water. And David is saying, that's what my soul is like right now. I'm worn out and I'm exhausted and my soul is panting and like a deer thirsts for the water, my soul just longs to be with you again, God. You know what that is? That is a relationship. That has nothing to do with religion. You see, King David says things like, um, I mean, in, on the same page in my Bible, he says things like, wherever I go, Lord, you are there. If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. When I'm awake, when I'm asleep, you're there. You hem me in before me and behind me. And then two Psalms later, he will say, why do you forsake me, O God? And you're like, are you, do you need medicine? What is wrong with you? <laughs> or how about Psalm 139? It's one of my favorite. I teach on it all the time. Psalm 39 is, is where you get the, dear God, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Listen to this. This is in a prayer. Here's what David says. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than sand. I awake and I am still with you. Sounds sweet, doesn't it? Here's the part people skip over when they read Psalm 139 in church. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men 
of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Next verse, search me, O God, and know my heart. (laughs) I'm like, David is schizophrenic. And I'm not making light of mental illness. I'm not at all. This brother is all over the place. And if I'm honest, me too. Because it's an actual relationship with God. Not a set of man-made rules and regulations that we must follow. If your relationship with the Lord is primarily based on how you are doing in your activities, then you will never really have an intimate relationship with the Lord. You see, because it ain't about you. It's what Christ did for you on the cross. Because what begins to happen is if you're doing good, you feel close to him. And if you ain't doing too good, you don't feel too close to him. Guess what the cross says? You ain't going to ever do too good. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's why it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. It's why I tell you all the time that God does not love some future version of you once you quit drinking so much during the week. He loves the you right now. And it's his love that is going to change you. C.S. Lewis says it this way. The Christian does not think that God will love us because we are good but that God will make us good because he loves us. You see, the gospel changes us. So what do you think about? What do you think about when you think about what it means to be a Christian? Do you think primarily about activity, about religious rules, or do you think about a relationship with your heavenly father made possible by his son, Jesus Christ? See, that's the difference between religion and relationship. Religion is... Here's what I can do to earn. A relationship is, here's what Jesus has done to earn it for you. So, in the whole book of Galatians is about this. The whole book of Galatians, there was a a group of people called the Judaizers that moved into this church in Galatia, and they were saying, if you want to be a Christian, you got to be a Jew first. You got to follow a list of rules as a prerequisite for you to be a follower of Jesus. Guess what the number one rule was? Circumcision. This is a bunch of Greek grown men who have come to know Jesus and these Judaizers are like, well, there's a, yeah, we got a membership class and there's a minor surgery you got to go through first. So it's all women in the membership class, right? <clears throat> and so Paul is like, hold on. If you go through with that, it's evidence that you don't understand what Jesus did on the gospel. In fact, it fires Paul up so much that in the book of Galatians, he says, I tell you what, next time you're doing a circumcision, why don't you slip and go ahead and take the whole thing off? Hey, don't look at me. Paul said it. I didn't write that in the Bible. So anytime somebody comes against me and they're like, hey, listen, aren't you a little aggressive from the pulpit? I'm like, look, I have never told anybody to cut anything off in the name of Jesus, okay? So he gets pretty passionate because it's an enemy of the gospel. And he says this in Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Here's what Paul is saying, that the gospel... The gospel doesn't mean that we're free to sin. It means we're free from sin. That's a big difference. If you say, well, hey, listen, I believe in Jesus. I got my get out of hell free card. I can do whatever I want. That is true. You can do whatever you want. And if you do whatever you want, then it is a testimony that Jesus is not your Lord, that you are your Lord. In other words, if you kind of have this cheap idea of law and grace and say, I do whatever I want, then it's evidence that you probably don't know Jesus. Because the gospel says we're free from sin. We're free from the penalty of sin. We're free from the power of sin. And one day we will be free from the very presence of sin. Martin Luther, 
the guy that they named the Lutheran church after, he was the, he was the founder and initiator of the Protestant Reformation. He's a key reason we have Bibles in our hands and, and we believe in sola scriptura, the authority of the word of God, and that we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in a world that was all about religious regulation and who was in and who was out, here's what he said. He said, whenever the devil harasses you, seek the company of good friends or drink more or joke, talk nonsense or do some other merry thing. Sometimes we must drink more and sport and recreate ourselves and even sin a little to spite the devil. That's what Martin Luther said, one of the greatest theologians of all time. He goes on to say, so that we leave the devil no place for troubling our consciences with trifles. We are conquered if we try too conscientiously not to sin at all. So when the devil says to you, do not drink, answer him, I will drink and write freely just because you tell me not to, Martin Luther. Now, some of you are like, this is the greatest church I've ever been to in my life. <laughs> Finally, all right, <clears throat> I am not telling you to drink more or less, just whatever the right amount is between you and Jesus, okay? And I am not saying that sin is not a big deal. Sin is such a big deal, Jesus had to die on the cross for it. But if your whole idea of what it means to be a Christian is about what you're doing or not doing here on this earth, then you miss the whole point of having a relationship with God. The one that can actually do something from the inside out about who you are and what you do. So Paul finishes up in verse 23 this way. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. In other words, if you're self-righteous and you can obey the laws, great. It looks like you're super wise in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value, no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. <clears throat> in other words, being a Christian is not an outside-in thing. It's an inside-out thing. And unless Jesus changes you at the heart level, then you'll never change. Or you will pursue this legalism that will be like slavery to you, like bondage to you. Here's the way Jesus says it. In Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they're critical, they're critical of his disciples. And basically what they're saying is this, we don't think your disciples actually follow God because they don't walk according to the tradition of the elders. And the one that they were talking about primarily is this, is that the disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. So every Pharisee and mama knows that's a really good idea. But the Pharisees are saying, it's because they did not obey the traditions of the elders, therefore they must not be followers of God. <clears throat> and so Jesus responds in Mark chapter 7, verse 14. He says, and Jesus called the people to him again. And he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going in him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and he left his people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Let's talk for a second. Jesus leaves the crowd. He takes the 12. They go into this house. Okay. If you think, hey, listen, man, I want to be a Christian. I'm just having a hard time getting it. You would make a great disciple. Because the disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand. 
And so um, public speaking 101 is uh, you, you got to win your crowd over by starting on a level that everybody can understand. So you don't go to the top shelf, you go to the bottom shelf. And so what, here's, where, here's where Jesus starts this teaching. You want to talk about low rung on the ladder. He's like, can we all agree that when you eat something, it goes into your stomach and then it leaves the body? And the disciples are like, that's the truth, okay? So that's how low he is starting. <clears throat> Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So maybe you've got a good Christian friend and with very good intentions and puddles in their eyes, they've tried to give you this chicken soup for the soul advice. Whatever you do, follow your heart. Jesus would say, no, follow Jesus because your heart is wicked and crooked and all the bad stuff in you comes from your heart. He is saying, you are your own worst enemy. Nobody's lied to you more than you. Nobody's got you in more trouble than you. No more, nobody's let you down more than you. And that all comes from within. And an outside in approach, according to Paul, is of no value. And when you pursue self-made religion, it's only, got a few, it's only got a few destinations. Like when you think my standing before God is predicated upon how good I am at keeping the rules. Here's one of the options, pride, pride. And here's why you're prideful, because some of you, some of you are super good at keeping the rules. Not me, but some of you are. If I, in fact, you like it if I go, here's 10 things you better do by Thursday. You'll crush, by Tuesday, you're done. Put it on Facebook with a selfie. Nailed it. <laughs> and so your activity is great. And the problem with that is pride rises up with it. Because at no point in your life can you simultaneously look down your nose in pride at some people and look up with your eyes at Jesus on the cross. It's impossible. You see, because the cross has outed us all. And so for some of you, it leads to pride. And then you begin to judge everybody else based on how they're doing and their activity. And Paul says, don't do that. The second, another option is it leads to exhaustion. You just, we create our own religious treadmills. The treadmills are dumb, dumb. You just do all this work and you don't go anywhere. That's what legalism is like. That's why I don't get on treadmills, okay? They're very non-biblical. You just work and work and work and work and then you're just there, worn out, all right? The same thing is true with legalism. <clears throat> you try to do good. You try to quit saying what you say. You do those things, and you're so focused on your own activity that you actually miss out on the whole point. It's not so that you can be better. It's so that you can be alive in Christ. The worst of it when you pursue man-made religion is this, is that you try to put God in your debt. I mean, you let a good church person, somebody grew up in church, do everything right. They did everything right their whole life. And they don't really know God. What they really know is, is some version of, of acting right. You let somebody do that, and they let the first bad thing happen in their life. And you know what they think? Really, God? Really? I mean, I studied my Bible. I memorized stuff. I went to youth group, True Love Waits. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't chew. I didn't go with girls who do. I didn't, I didn't go watch that filth. Every, I didn't see Fifty Shades of Grey, all right? 
And now, how come I'm the single one, lonely, and all my friends, they did everything wrong, and I'm going to all their weddings, and you can't, you can't hook me up? What's the problem? Or you let somebody get sick, and you're like, all right, God, so that's how you're going to treat me? And here's the really sad thing. And then the really sad thing is you just kind of know about God, but you don't know him. You know about God, but you don't actually know him. You see, in the scriptures, the scriptures give us this example that marriage, that marriage is supposed to be a picture of what a relationship with God is like. That, that the church is the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. That's a pretty intimate relationship, is it not? I've been married for 17 years. It'll be 17 years old, February the 26th. So a couple weeks from now, it'll be 17 years. I just gotta be honest. Man, I love that girl. I mean, more now than I ever have in my life. We've had a two-week run that is just like a honeymoon again. I, I don't know how to describe it, except that Jesus is in the middle and we act like it. And on Fridays, we go on dates. We do these little Friday day dates because we are in the glory years. We got two kids. They're both in school, 11 and 7. We got no diapers. We got no driver's license. Praise God from whom all <laughs> blessings flow. And we got a little time, so we go out on Friday, man, and I just, here's what'll happen. I'll look at her, get eyeball to eyeball with her at Seasons 52, because somebody gave us a gift card, and I'm trying to tell her in Seasons how much I love her and appreciate her and the ministry does. I love, she does. I love when she leads worship. I love how she raises our kids, and I just love her. And you get to this point where you're just like, you say dumb stuff. I just want to eat your face, you know, because you just don't have <laughs> words. And then when I do that, every single time, like, I've tried to do this in a couple services, but she was sitting on the front row, and I started, I, can't, I couldn't get through it. I had to skip this part, but she's in my office right now. And I get all welled up. Like, I can't even get through it. I can't tell her what's going on in here about her, because I just get all like, oh, my goodness. My lip gets all shaky. My voice is like this. I feel like I'm going, and then I can't breathe. <laughs> Sorry. The waiter comes up. Are you okay? Shut up, you know. And I say I don't care about your feelings, but I got a lot for that girl. Now, can you imagine if Gretchen were to come to me and say, hey, do you love me? I go, of course I love you. I married you. And I told you 17 years ago that I loved you, and I'll let you know if anything changes. And, uh, and you know, I pay the bills, let you live indoors. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, uh, why don't you take it? You raise the kids. And do the homework and cook and clean, and I'll, I'll make the money, and I'll cut the grass and take the cars to the mechanic. Deal? Deal. What kind of marriage would that be? Honestly, some of you are like, mine. <laughs> That's why it sucks. Because it's just like a contractual obligation. For some of you, that's what your, that's what your Christianity is like. It's just cold, dead pragmatism. That is not what Christ died for for you. That is not why he saved you and adopted you into his family. It is to have this like soul-burning relationship with God. Are there highs and lows? Absolutely. But it's an actual, real relationship. And if you try to handle it from the outside in, it just won't work. That's what Jesus is saying. The, at the heart of the problem, you've got a problem in your heart. And if you just try to cure this with outside activity, you'll never get to the heart. And so Jesus came and died on a cross for you to change your heart from the inside out so that you could have a relationship with him. You see, the, the way you know the purpose of a thing is to know how the creator created it and then what it was created for. It's what the whole Bible is about. The whole Bible is about one thing, God's glory through his reconciling work in his son, Jesus Christ.
And that counts for you. You see, in the very beginning, out of God's relationship with God's self, because he's a triune God, he creates us in his own image. That means that we have the ability to give and receive love like no other part of creation. And when God created the very first man, when he created Adam, he he forms together the form of a man, but it's not until he breathes the ruah of life into Adam, the breath of life, the spirit of life into Adam. Adam opens his eyes and he is face to face with his heavenly father. That's what every single one of us was created for. That, that missing something you have in your life, if you don't know Christ, is that. That we were all created to be in a face-to-face relationship with God. Undefiled, uninterrupted. And then sin enters the world because God is holy and just. He kicks them out of the garden. He curses man, woman, and all of creation. But because he is full of love, grace, and mercy, he does not kill them in that moment. He covers over their sin. By shedding the blood of an animal. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. It's about God's relentless pursuit of his wayward children. It's It's what Abraham and his promise was about. That God said, I will bless you that you would bless everybody on the planet. It's what the law of God was about when he called Moses to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he takes them through the Red Sea right after the Passover. And then he gives them the law of God that would be both a map and a mirror. A map to show you what life abundantly looks like and a mirror to show you that you couldn't do it so God would have to do something for us that we could not do. He'd have to do an inside work. And so he establishes the the sacrificial system, the day of atonement where the people of God would come before him and they would confess their sins, that the priest would, would transfer the sin of the people to the head of a scapegoat, send it out to the desert to die. And then the high priest would shed the blood of a lamb on the Ark of the Covenant to cover over the sins of the Jewish people for one year. It was to show everybody God's got to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. It's what all the prophets talked about. Every single one of the prophets said, one day God's going to send his son to do for us what we cannot do. That's what the angels talked about in the book of Luke. When the angels show up and say, behold, I bring you good tidings, great news for all the people. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Not a teacher, not a rabbi, but a savior. A savior to save us from us. It's what John the Baptist proclaimed on the day that Jesus got baptized. When John the Baptist, Jesus' first cousin, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the entire world. Not another Lamb of God that's going to cover over the sin of the Jewish people for one more year. But the Lamb of God. And then Jesus, for three years, tells us what God is like. That's what he does. And 189 times, you know how Jesus describes the almighty sovereign king of the universe? Father, father. The disciples come to him and say, hey, how do we pray? And he goes, here's how you pray. Start out this way, our father. And they're like, no, he's sovereign king of the universe. Jesus is like, yeah, that's right. But he just happens to be your dad. If you are in me, then I and the father are one. This is how you know God. You know him as heavenly father. He takes his disciples up on this mountain outside of Caesarea Philippi, and he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That the one that the prophets talked about that was going to come and crush the enemy's head and going to make a way for us to know God the Father again, I think you are him. And Jesus says that you're right. And upon this rock, upon the public declaration that I am that one that has made a way for us to have a relationship with the heavenly Father, upon that rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And when he pushes up on his nail-pierced feet on that cross and he says, it is finished, what he is saying is everything that the law and the prophets and everything in the Old Testament pointed to, that it is finished, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. 
that a reconciling bridge has been made over our sins so that you and I could have a relationship with God. And then the entire rest of the New Testament, it is all about not that that the gospel is just our get-out-of-hell-free card so that one day in the by and by we could be with God, but that Jesus has come to give us an abundant life and that our eternal life starts now. And then the way that you can know a purpose of a thing is how, like what it was created for and how it all ends up. And in Revelation chapter 21 is the consummation of all things. The consummation of all things. It says this. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. And that Adam starts out eyes open in a face-to-face relationship with God because that's what he was created for, to demonstrate the glory of God in his relationship with him. Sin fractures that, Jesus fixes that, and what every person that is hidden in Christ, that surrendered their life to Christ, we were not saved to a religion. We were saved for what he talks about here in Revelation chapter 21, that he would be our God and he, he would call us sons and daughters because we have a relationship with Jesus. You see, here's what religion says. Religion says my activity earns a right standing before God. Good luck with that. It'll wear you out. The gospel says Jesus' activity earns my relationship with God. My question to you is this. Do you have a relationship with him? Is there anybody here, some of you think you're so bad that you couldn't be saved? God's grace is so much bigger than your sin. Okay, your sin is laughable compared to the grace of God on the cross. There's some of you, you've just been religious your whole life. It's just been activity, but your identity has never changed because you have never really believed that when Christ died on the cross, that counted for you. You thought you had to help him out a little little with your activity. Is there anybody here that's ready to get off of the treadmill of legalism and get into a relationship with your heavenly father because of what Christ has done on the cross? That could happen right now. Would you please close your eyes and bow your head? And I would ask you, if you were ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, then just admit it to God. Admit that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And believe, trust that when Jesus died on the cross, somehow that counted for you. And in this moment, confess him as Lord, and the Bible says that you'll be saved. And so if that's you, if you prayed that prayer, if you're ready to get off the treadmill of religion and you're ready to enter into a relationship with the almighty God through the grace of his son, Jesus Christ, would you raise your hand and say, Father, here I am. I am ready to come running to you. 
Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we love you because you loved us first and you went first and you sent your son to seek and save that which was lost so that your lost children could come home to you and to an unhindered, undefiled, uninterrupted, face-to-face relationship with the cosmic king of the universe who in Christ just happens to be our dad. We thank you for that relationship, God. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.